3: Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, closing out a horrific week. If you look at Lavaldi, uh what happened at that elementary school over in Texas, still trying to piece it together. That'll be the focus of a lot of this show. Jack Carr uh, is the number one New York Times bestselling author of uh, and a Navy SEAL. His latest book is called In the Blood, a thriller. It's his fifth, uh, and that's going to be great. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alvin North is standing by to bring some perspective, not only what's happening here domestically, but other things that are happening, for example, in the Ukraine, He's been about on every war zone really since Vietnam uh, that America has been involved with. So let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three.
0: Number three. What we now have is a very clear pattern in both the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank scandal. Both of them originated with the Clinton campaign. When it went over to the FBI, apparently, according to this agent, James Comey and the rest of the FBI were chomping at the bit. What does that mean for the overall case? The Durham trial wraps up today. Defendant Michael Sussman decides
3: not to take the stand. What we know because of his trial and what are Durham's chances of conviction. Is there any justice, is there any chance Sussman uh, should be the first of many to go down? It seems like a layup, but nothing is a lock with that D.C. jury.
0: Number two. We are going to extend a hand of partnership to those who have been sitting on the sidelines, to those who have chosen
4: to side with the gun lobby. I think there's a sense of urgency that maybe we didn't feel before. We're going to try to work through this and see if we can find that common ground.
3: Senator John Cornyn, it's so this a time to look at guns and school safety. Bipartisan talks underway uh, through Memorial Day. What are, uh, what are the chances and what should happen, if anything? I'll offer my views and get it from the Colonel, too.
1: Number one.
5: Multiple witnesses that I spoke with said as soon as they heard gunshots, they immediately jumped in a car, got to Rob Elementary, and that's where they were met with law enforcement. They couldn't get into the school. Multiple parents told me that they were frustrated by law enforcement inaction and don't understand why it took so long to
3: get to the shooter. Jorge Ventura of The Daily Caller. The Daily, Yes, The Daily Caller. Funerals begin for the 19 grade schoolers and two teachers who lost their lives uh, this week. But what I know now about the timeline and what you should know, too, about the killer, we will uh, elaborate. And we've been told a lot of mistruths over the last few days. Lieutenant Colonel Alvin North has seen it all. The worst to battle, the best to battle. Uh, big wins, big losses. And he's got a new book coming out, uh, Tragic Consequences, The Price America's Paying for Rejecting God and How to Reclaim Our Culture for Christ. Um, you check it out on faithful dot com. Colonel, welcome back. Great to hear from you,
6: Brian. Great to hear you on the air. I caught you just a few minutes ago on TV and here you are doing three hours of radio. No one up there working harder than you are and getting the word out straight.
3: Well, thanks. I'm, I'm doing doing our best to piece together some of the facts. Uh, and I want to talk about the big picture and also get your take because we have not spoken about Ukraine uh, just about this operation and, and why I believe it's important for us to do everything for them to be successful. I'll get your view in a moment. But I, I was shocked to hear some of how much has been told to us that was wrong since the shooting in Uvalde. Your take from what we know.
6: Well, first, I I, I think there's a lot more incompetence and misfeasance than there is malfeasance in that. And I say that just because it's a small town. I've been through it. A, a, I'll bet a half a dozen times when I was traveling down in Texas. And I, I was born in San Antonio, which is the biggest city, close enough to Uvalde. And it's a little town you go through on the way to Fredericksburg to go to the museum out there. Uh, so I think I don't think those are intentional. I think it's a lot of misinformation, not necessarily generated by someone with intent. And so I look at what what transpired in that school. And I'm drawn to several conclusions, yeah. even with what we know. One, it took way too long to get to the shooter. Number two, there was almost apparently no operational security that was in place out there. Number three, you've got, uh, quite frankly, an attack on an elementary school was not in the planning of anybody, apparently. And so, yeah, it took four minutes or five minutes, whatever it was, to get police on the scene but then it took another over an hour I guess I was looking at the timeline you guys had up up this morning and it's and it's still guessing at how many minutes it took for people to move around inside the building so you know without getting into the morality I do want to get into that as, as we talk about it because it's directly related to the book and we didn't by the way the book was long planned to come out in May because it's it's election season. Officially begins with primary season. Primary season is in May, and that's why we brought the book out in May. It had nothing to do with the expectation we're going to have three mass murders, you know, wild gunmen in the space of eleven days. But okay, yeah. if I if, if I Go look ahead. at the mechanics of of what you got to do, what we're not doing, and I'm not bragging or complaining. When I was president of the NRA, we had a program called School Shield. It was based on military theory of how you protect things, okay? And it's a defense in depth. It basically has four parts. First of all, you've got to decide what your defensive zone is, if you're protecting a seaport or an airport or, or a military base. Number two, you've got to have intelligence gathered about what the threat really is. Number three, you've got to be able to intercept the threat between – where the threat's coming from, and trying to get to. And number four, you've got to have point defense, the kind of protections. That that means somebody's got a a firearm out of their holster or on their shoulder, engaging the adversary. Now, those are four things that are fairly complex if you don't know what you're doing. doing. We were actually running the program. It started in 2012, even before I became president of the NRA. And, and I would like to see it still being advocated. I don't know that it is. I, I got fired over there. That's a different issue. And the, the bottom line of it, those kinds of techniques will protect a place. You just got to decide politically whether you're going to allocate the resources necessary, and most of it's money. The so, fact is, if you're going to harden the yeah. school to protect the kids inside it and the teachers, then you're going to have to do things like lock the doors. You've got to have abilities, the ability to electronically shut things down you got to have the ability to have the cops be able to open a door if the bad guy's inside killing kids like this guy was. All those kinds of things have to be taken into consideration, and you need experts at it. A lot of people don't even know this, but the Secret Service, working with the Department of Education way back in, I think it was 2002 or three, put together an actual operational plan for how you go about protecting kids in school. Nobody's paying attention to it. We've got Hundreds of million billions of dollars that were allocated that haven't been spent yet from the COVID stuff. Some of it was supposed to go through the K through 12 education. I'm told there's a boatload of it. So, right. my, so my suggestion, yeah. my suggestion very quickly is what you do is you reopen the, the the what was recommended either by NRA or by by the Secret Service and the Department of Education. Number two, put the money into it. Number three, in addition to arming. People inside schools to protect kids. That's the point. Defense people. You can't just wait for the folks to show up from town. If, if the cops aren't in the school, school resource officers, it's going to take too long to get there. I don't care where you are. So,
3: so they say nationally, 19% of elementary schools have an armed officer, 45% of middle schools, and 67% of high schools. High schools. But right. if, they, but I'll tell you what, you could have the most sophisticated, or or rudimentary. Uh, security plan. But if this is the case, we got a problem. Here's the Texas Department of Public Safety Regional Director, Victor Escalon.
7: So right now, you know, during the investigation, it appears it was unlocked. So we're going to look at that and try to cooperate that as best as we can.
3: And you you have a high school, excuse me, a grammar school with the doors unlocked. Right. My goodness. Not only is there not an officer, but it's an unlocked school. I don't remember the right. last time I've, I've, I went to pick up uh, anybody at school, and there wasn't one entrance in and one entrance out yep.
6: uh, anywhere. It, look, it, we protect our airports, our banks, our government buildings. The Fox News headquarters in New York has better protection than an elementary school down the street. Think about that. What you, when we came into the building, whether I was working out of Washington or working out of New York, oh, yeah. there's armed guards down in the, in the lobby. They don't wave, wave their guns around. But you can't get through that lobby without the proper ID or a note from somebody saying, Brian Kilmeade, St. Holly North coming in to see me, right? How the hell is it that we've got schools that are wide open? I want to add one more thing to what I recommended, okay? I would recommend that if you want to be able to use role models as good examples, human beings learn best when they are shown something rather than reading about it or watching a video. Fact of life. I would like to see a program to hire, let's say, pick a number, 250,000 veterans who would be in schools, whether they're disabled or whether they're whatever, would be in schools to be mentors, to be counselors, to be the kinds of people. Here we are. This is, this is you know Memorial Day we're talking about, and I'm going to recommend this at the Heroes Festival down in Daytona when I get down there in, uh, on Saturday. I would like to see 250,000 veterans in the schools as mentors, counselors, coaches, and the kinds of people who are alert enough to see something that's not right and do something about it. I'm not saying they don't all have to be armed. Some of them probably should be. I would like to see more of that kind of point defense capability in the school already.
3: Well, a couple of things, Colonel. There's one thing that's pretty clear. Uh, we, have to, we have to be able to harden every target, the smallest and biggest school. And yep. if there's ever a national program that you kind of mentioned that there is money there, pandemic or not, that American people can get behind Republicans and Democrats, it's that. And many people point to the fact that you remember skyjacking. And that oh, there yeah. was skyjacking was happening like 11 a year for a long time. Well, we decided oh, we're yeah. going to not allow that to happen. And it, thankfully, it doesn't happen now. You know, sadly, we still have some blown out of the sky, and we saw it happen on 9-11. That's the same thing that's got to happen. There's a national sentiment to support that, and I would love to see a hardening of that, and why not? If there's not enough retired cops, I think we're military, coming out of the military, especially now as we wind down two wars, which are done, uh, but we might have to go back in someday. uh, Why not just make them the first hire to go into the schools, big and small, and be be capable of, uh, you know, go through the training for this specific operation yep. to be able, two of them in every school.
6: At Why least not? Two. At least two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the size of the school. And
3: let, let every killer know, if you're going to try for a school, that's de- that's a death sentence.
6: Right over. No, we do, we put up a sign outside the school. It's a big yellow sign it says, gun-free zone.
3: And, that, and, and that, that, that means that's attack.
6: That's what makes crazies like the three that you know, committed these massacres over the course of the last, was it, 12 days? I mean, right. it's unbelievable.
3: So, so, what makes you think? or you you write this book, Tragic Consequences: The Price America's Paying for Rejecting God and How to Reclaim Our Culture for uh, Christ? And you, you can check it out on faithfultext.com. Um What do you mean, America is rejecting God? We're supposed to we're supposed to have a separation between church and state, right?
6: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, look, it began 1962. The case is Engel versus Vitale. It was an upstate New York lawsuit. Engel was the uh, was the uh, person who wanted to get rid of prayer in school. And so they did in 1962. I was in the last high school class in America where you could actually graduate saying a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for your support for us. We beg your blessings on us, our parents, our teachers, and our, yeah. our school. That's It's almost exactly what the prayer was. That's 62. 1973, Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade is more than a cultural degradation. It's a part of driving God out of the lives of of the American people. And what you got is not just infanticide, it launched an assault on the sanctity of human life, polarized our politics, and results in threats against conservative justices. All of that is a consequence, it's driving to the the tragic consequence of a nation that no longer regards God to be part of their day-to-day lives. Every time I hear someone like that congressman who wrote off to Ted Cruz and several other people using profane language, by the way, a former Marine, which is really painful. He's an Arizona congressman. I don't even want to use his name. He he writes off to people using profane and and, and vulgar language and talks about effing prayers. Okay. Now, let me just tell you something. That's the kind of thing that's got to stop in this country. That's the kind of thing that has driven people over the brink. Today, we've got people who pretend to be God because they're multi-bazillionaires, and God is not happy. And what this book offers is a solution. In every chapter, there's what you can do about it. I'd like to take the congressman aside and just ask him, what did you expect to happen in America when you drove God out of our schools, our public gatherings, the media, the entertainment world? What did you expect the outcome was going to be? Because we're, we're seeing it. It's, it's much more than simply the issue, the issue of a Supreme Court decision. It is, the, it is the people of America who have got to get back down. Look, I'm an old man. Somebody asked me, why, why did you write this book? I'm an old man. I've got 18 grandkids. I'm, I'm selfish about their future. I'm, I'm, for the first time in my life, concerned that this nation may not survive as it is. And I wanted to leave behind something that they could look at and say, that was my granddad. He taught me. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't just talk about it. Right. He showed me, me how to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith.
3: You're a great example for everybody, 365 days a year, let alone people you're related to. But I'm going to close out to somebody. These, uh, the NRA kind of went south. When you went in there and tried to fix it, uh, they didn't like that. Uh, they, got, they decided <laughs> they're going to have to get rid of Oliver North, and they've gone down south ever since. Should they be having a conference in Houston uh, today?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, th- th- there is a membership out there. The membership needs to be supported. Those used to be wonderful extravaganzas. I understand it's much smaller than it used to be. Uh, I-, I think something's got to change. The country needs an NRA. Let's let's keep it that way. It-, it needs something to support the Second Amendment and do the kinds of training and safety programs that the NRA was doing for years. The NRA also needs to be able to go, go out there and raise money for- to-, to do things like School Shield. And- right. And- and the idea. I mean, some about
3: the timing of it, uh, uh, Colonel.
6: Well, well, yeah, but it was. Remember, you can't book a venue in America. It's two weeks out. You've got to book it. You know, months out. Gotcha. And, the, and the thing was booked in Houston way before. I know that. Look, there's people down in Texas right now that are saying the reason all this happened is the NRA is here. That's that's totally. That's the, we know that. Today. Yeah, yeah. That's crap. Well, of course that. But the, as, as you and I both know, yeah. it's more than a political issue.
3: Uh, Colonel Alvin North, uh, we didn't get to Ukraine, but we got to more important stuff about the future of America. It's all in your book, Tragic Consequences, the price America is paying for rejecting God and how to reclaim our culture for Christ. Colonel uh, North, thanks so much.
6: Thank you, brother. Semper Fi.
3: Yeah, back at you, and I will uh, hopefully see you soon. When we come back, it's your time to talk. I'll go over the timeline a little bit more on what we know. We're going to get more details within our show. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move.
2: Educating.
9: A
2: talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
7: It was reported that a school district police officer confronted the suspect that was making entry. Not actually. He walked in unobstructed initially. So from the grandmother's house to the bar did, to the school, into the school, he was not confronted by anybody.
3: And that was the most stunning news I got out of everything. And it's not so much the fact. is the fact that we were told something totally different, that they were he was confronted, or was the shooter, the 18-year-old, by an armed guard who was able to confront him, get a shot off, and able to, to drop a bag full of ammo, or it could have been so much worse. It turns out to be total fiction. Who's responsible for that story and continue to tell that story for at least a day or two is nuts. I'm used to the fog of war. One person was in, two person was in, one person had a gun, two. I'm used to that, but not a whole fictional confrontation at, a, at a somebody's, uh, I don't know, uh, I guess some cop show they watched the night before. Bottom line is 19 kids dead, two, uh, two teachers, 15, 17 were actually put into hospital. Most are expected to survive. The grandmother who was shot in the face also expected to survive. She has a lot of answers. She can't talk, but she can write. Hopefully she'll start helping us out to find out how this kid got so twisted uh, and um, how he was able to stay under the radar. Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
5: Multiple witnesses that I spoke with said, as soon as they heard gunshots, they immediately jumped in THE car, got to Rob Elementary, and that's where they were met with law enforcement. They couldn't get into the school. It got to a point where a group of parents actually huddled together and were game planning to go into that into that school. We've also learned that uh, a mother was actually placed in handcuffs from federal marshals. We also know that a father was tased uh, attempting to grab his kid once his kid was on the bus. Um, multiple parents told me that they were frustrated by law enforcement inaction and don't understand why it took so long to get to the shooter.
3: And it was about an hour, Jorge Ventura of the Daily Caller reporting that uh, because we we found out yesterday uh, that there was no confrontation with the uh, with the killer. He got in through an open door, and he was able to hang hang out in that classroom for an hour. But then we did get some amendments to that. For some reason, this wasn't made clear yesterday afternoon. The two officers went in, both were shot. One in the ear, one in the arm, and still hung in there for a while outside that door. Jack Carr knows all about uh, the, the dangers in going into a room like that through of hostile actors. He's a former Navy SEAL. His latest book is In the bud, a thriller. It's his fifth uh, and, uh, thriller in the Terminal List series. And uh, Jack Carr joins us now. Welcome, Jack.
6: Hey,
3: thank you so much for having me on. Hey, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so Jack, the uh, the border patrol, the 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 border tech, the Border tech, was yeah. the ones who took uh, this shooter down. They waited for them to arrive because evidently these cops weren't trained to handle a situation like this. They borrowed the U.S. Marshal's shield and they went in into a stackle with a stack of four, maybe more. Do you need an expertise like the type you have and they have in order to be successful? Or is there another thing that an officer could do?
9: Well, it certainly helps, but uh, it's really about that, that mindset. In an in extremist situation, um, you're running to the sound of the guns. And uh, you think that most police officers have that. You think that most special operators have that in the military. Uh, especially when it's a hostage situation, which calls for going in and saving that hostage. Um, that's what you have here. Of course, you have a barricaded shooter. But what we have is, is so much data to go back and look at and understand that, hey, history is probably going to repeat itself. Uh, so it's just a matter of time for this happens again, whether it's a shooter like this or it's terrorists. We go back to the Beslan school siege in September of 2004. That was three days where Chechen terrorists took over a school. Ended up 300 over 300 people were killed in that Uh, and that is something that could very well happen here and why? Because our schools are soft targets. Uh, our airports were soft targets. We fixed that after September 11th. Uh, we neglect to look at the pages of history, not in very recent history. 2004 wasn't that long ago. Uh, and we refuse for some reason to harden our schools. Israel has done it. Uh, they've been very successful in doing that. Uh, but we, for some reason, refuse to protect the softest targets among us. And, uh, and it, it's unforgivable.
3: Right. Uh, 19% of elementary schools have an armed guard. Uh, they say 67% of high schools have them. What would it take for you to feel good about the school that somebody in your family was going to? How many guards would they be armed? Would teachers be armed? Yeah.
9: Yep. It all depends on the size of the school, obviously, how many students, how large a, a landmass that you're, you're talking about there. Um, so with those factors in mind, it's definitely armed guards with ARs uh, with that AR type weapon system um, because uh, you will go to a place that is uh, not as hard as that one if you're looking for a place to uh, to commit these crimes or commit an act of terrorism. So uh, what Israel has done they have that's what they have and guess what their teachers for the most part also carry concealed, um, and for some reason our teachers uh, or our school districts, uh, whatever it might be, uh, they don't want to take that step. They just don't want to believe that they live in a world where that is necessary. And you know, I'll tell you what: for most of human history, it has been necessary to have these skills to defend yourself, to right. defend your family, defend your tribe. Uh, only for a very small portion of human history have we been able to outsource these types of things and to think that we can call nine one one. But by its very nature, that means that the police are showing up afterward, after the crime has already been committed. So uh, you, it's, it's up to the quote-unquote victim to not be a victim, to be prepared and to protect themselves and to protect those in their care.
3: Jack Carr with me now, former Navy SEAL, New York Times bestseller, brand-new book out called uh, In the Blood, a thriller uh, that will continue on with this series. Just go over the timeline. 11.28, the killer arrives and crashes his truck. We don't know why. Then he gets up and indiscriminately fires at two people at a funeral home. And by the way, his grandmother called 911 after being shot in the face by this mutant. So then a 911 call comes in from the funeral home people, we assume. Ramos lingers outside the school for 12 minutes, firing shots before he gets into the school unobstructed. Jack, the door was open. 1143, um, he, uh, he goes into Robb Elementary School, and, uh, and he starts going looking around for people to attack. He walks 30 feet down the tunnel. He walks another 20 feet into a classroom where he kills all 19 kids and two teachers. The police arrive at 1144. They don't go in to the building, we understand, until 1:05, 1154, the parents get so enraged, they start begging police to let them go into the building to give them their armor. What do you glean from this situation?
9: I mean, it's just so heartbreaking on so many different levels. Um, we have a situation just a couple years ago in Nairobi, Kenya, Christian Craighead. He's off duty. Well, not off duty. I mean, he's a, he's a part of the SAS, British SAS. He happens to be in Nairobi. A uh, suicide bomber walks into the courtyard of a hotel, detonates, uh, is followed up by uh, multiple terrorists with AKs that enter the hotel and start executing people floor by floor. I uh, had an American on uh, my podcast, Melee Chapin, who was in one of those rooms hiding for 17 hours. And uh, she credits Christian Craighead for hearing that the suicide bomber go off, for hearing during the gunfire and for running to the sound of the guns and as a single person enters that hotel and starts taking out those terrorists. Uh, he ran to the sound of the guns in an extremist situation, and uh, she credits him with saving her life and hundreds of others. Um, so that's what a situation like this requires. It requires that you run to the sound of the guns, and, uh, I mean, you have to do that. But regardless of what people think about Second Amendment issues and all the rest of that, uh, while people debate that in this country, in the meantime, we can harden these targets. We can make them harder. Uh, we do it with our air we do it with banks, we do it with jewelry stores. Politicians are surrounded by 24-7 full-time security. Uh, we can do that to our schools. We can make them oh. hard targets. And for whatever reason, we neglect to do that. And then we can also give police officers a little bit more training. Um, and they should be thinking about this. So the first time they think about having to enter uh, a, uh, a, an area where someone has barricaded and has uh, hostages, especially children, it shouldn't be on the day that it's happening. Uh, they should be thinking about that ahead of time. They should be training for that ahead of time and know that their job requires them to run to the sound of the guns and take action. So it's, uh, I mean, it's heartbreaking all around. But in the meantime, as the country debates certain issues, we can harden our schools and make them harder targets.
3: Right, uh, we'll debate it. Here's what Senator John Cornyn said. It looks like he's getting together with Republicans to Democrats and try to work something out. Cut 21.
4: I think there's a sense of, you know, uh, urgency that maybe we didn't feel before we're going to try to work through this and see if we can find that common ground that's uh but i think our goal should be
3: so what do you think what would you think would be acceptable for gun users
9: yeah well the common ground should be to harden our schools well these guys number one in the we agree um, with that yeah number one absolutely like that is we would you raise the age to it? 21
3: to buy an ar-15
9: no no it's uh it's uh You you can pick out certain things here and there always and and have more laws on the books. We have so many different laws on the books already, um, but hardening our schools for sure, making them harder. If someone keeps breaking into your house, time and time again, or someone keeps coming in, let's say you have a large family, keeps coming in and killing one of them, uh, how long is it going to be until you harden your house, until you, uh, mm-hmm. until you get armed security, until you put up gates, until you put up lights, until you put up cameras, until you train your family what to do when this happens, uh, until you care, start carrying concealed to make them go somewhere else, and, right. uh, and look at you not as a soft target, but as a hard target. Um, you know, signs that say uh, this is a drug-free zone or this is a gun-free zone, uh, oh, don't do much of anything all it does is make sure that the uh, law-abiding citizens uh aren't there to save the day when they need to be um in fact it's a it's a magnet for people that uh, that want to commit these kind of crimes so understood it's, it's heartbreaking and it's unforgivable uh
3: let me uh let's talk about your book uh in the blood a thriller it's, uh, it's the fifth one in your series uh and it's a uh, james reese is in the center of the action set the scene
9: that's right this is a sniper centric novel of violent resolutions And uh, there's some some, uh, unfinished business in the last few novels that uh, gets taken care of in this one. But it's the fifth in a series. The first one is being turned into an Amazon Prime Video Series this summer, dropping on July 1st, 4th of July weekend. Starring Chris Pratt, directed by Antoine Fuqua, and uh, it is amazing. I could not be more thrilled with how that turned out. But this latest book just hit the New York Times list at number one, debuting there yesterday. So that was fantastic, and it's uh, it's people's favorite thus far. So that's uh, that makes me feel pretty good. But this one right here is uh, it's, it's very personal. It's very emotional, and uh, other than the theme of a sniper on sniper type of engagement, without that. Trope of two snipers on separate hillsides or buildings that are looking for each other at the same time and shoot at the last second. I needed to write a sniper centric novel that didn't have that scene because that scene's been done. And as much as I love it, I had to figure out a way around that one. So there's also a theme in here that's uh, of of forgiveness, which is a little strange because that one appeared as I was writing. But uh, don't worry for anybody listening out there. I'm not joining the Oprah Book Club anytime soon. There's a Plenty of explosions and vengeance uh, throughout. So, uh, yeah, just couldn't be more thrilled that this thing debuted at number one. And uh, that's all due to people taking a risk on me, reading it, and telling a friend. So thank you to everybody. Who, and uh, who
3: did and knowing, Jack, that you lived it, uh, a lot of this stuff, the, your firsthand experience of the context you have to bring some of the, uh, authenticity to these stories, I think, goes a long way. It's called In the Blood, a Thriller, uh, the fifth in the Terminal List series. Jack Carr, congratulations. Thanks for your insight. You can also follow him at Jack Carr with two R's USA. Thanks, Jack.
9: Hey, thanks for having me on. Take care.
3: You got it. 1-866-408-7669. When we come back, we'll open up the phones and get your take on the timeline as we know it. We're about to get more information, and then we'll share them with you. And then what are you on board with? Whether you are a grandparent, parent, uh, a kid, how do we harden the target and make schools safer today? Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
10: I'm appalled at what I believe has happened, or at least what we think has happened so far. The fact that, look, for 12 minutes, the shooter was outside shooting. And then he went into the school, and four minutes later, police respond. But they were ill-prepared for the attack. They didn't have body armor. It doesn't appear like they had rifles and the ability to get into the classroom and stop the killing, so they sat outside for what appears to be forty minutes, waiting for a tactical response team to come in and address the threat.
3: So uh, that is Ryan Petty, whose uh, whose child was killed in Florida uh, when they had those rampages at Stoneham High School, and we thought that the cops waiting on the outside was a disaster. It was disastrous for the survival of a lot uh, a lot of those uh, students because the r- shooter was able to go back and forth and just finish off some people that were wounded and weren't dead yet. Uh, joining us now, uh, actually, let me open up the phones. Bill is listening in Pennsylvania WTRW to talk about this. Hey, Bill.
11: Hi, Brian. I just want to wish you a, a great holiday weekend coming up. Bless you and your family. Thanks and, so uh, much. I just got to tell you, on One
3: a- Nation for Memorial Day, we have uh, – Gary Sinise, who does more for troops than perhaps anybody I know, except for, of course, maybe Dan Rooney, who started Fold for Honor, uh, Folds of Honor. And then you have Tunnel to Towers, Frank Siller. There are three of our guests. But go ahead, Bill. What's on your mind?
0: Uh, it's about the NRA. Um,
12: my, my comment is I'm an ex-NRA member, and I am a, a proud gun owner. Uh, I think going forward, even at this convention, wouldn't it be great if the NRA just announced
11: that going forward, they're going to be the trailblazers, that are going to take on security in schools and come up with innovative ways to prevent these shootings. Like they take on a dual role, not
12: only to be a gun advocate, but also be the ones that trailblaze the new ideas that that prevent some of these shootings from happening. I, I think that'd be great for their image. Uh, it would prevent them from becoming the villain all the time every time something like right. this happens. If they
11: started a think tank and – Got together with some of the best security forces and just came up with. Well, I'll tell you what, Bill, I don't know if you heard our interview prevent-
3: with Oliver North, who used to run the NRA. They have a program They put hundred million dollars into it and uh, it's out there and it's from the research. So I'm not sure it's exactly what we need. But it would be a start, and they should play a role. But instead, they want to vilify. If President Biden comes down and starts saying Republicans do this and they're responsible, and bring of his old rhetoric of "deal doesn't uh, is not in the wood deer is not in the woods with Kevlar vests, you don't need an AR-15." That just alienates people. So let's maybe there's going to get something done. It's two things: mental illness too. I want this red flag law to be put into play that if you're a wild man at 16, uh, and you turn 18. And there's nothing in your background check because any problems you had at 16 do not transfer to adulthood. I think there's got to be an amendment for people that, that pledge violence when you're a teenager, that there should be a background. When you get a background check, there's got to be a red flag that says you got to take a better look at this guy. This guy could be a problem like the shooter in Buffalo. I wonder if there's a way to implement that. Jamie WVMT in Vermont. Jamie.
6: Thanks for taking my call, Brian. Um, and I. Last guy said no. But, you know, if,
9: if money is an issue, we're sending $40 billion worth of military equipment to Ukraine. And I just feel like, you know, 100% of the American civilians or citizens here would gladly send a billion dollars to help train officers or train uh, uh, veterans
6: to protect our schools.
3: Yeah, there's enough money here for that. And no no question. And they'll be able to get it. And I don't think you have to de- deny the Ukrainians who are doing the fighting really for the entire West of anything that they need, you could do it. And especially the crap that we spend on and how much money we've been wasted. There's a national movement to harden our schools and make them safe. Pro gun, anti gun. Doesn't matter. We all have the same objective. So the red flag right. we can get behind and number two, hardening the targets. And I love your idea of using uh, retired military because you just train them for, for more domestic use in elementary school instead of taking down an Iraqi mud hut, uh, I'm all for. It. And I bet you they can make the adjustment. Donnie, W-L-A-D, Connecticut. Donnie.
11: Hey, Brian, what's happening, brother?
3: What's on your mind?
11: Um, vets. I'm for the vets, too. It's backups, though. My my uh, idea is this. it's You ever hear micromanaging? And all these companies using micromanaging. Well, if the schools had a room set up where you, you have um, – a monitoring system, okay? And if something's wrong or whatever, a door's ajar, a door's unlocked, or you want to monitor a hallway, you want to monitor a classroom, you can, you can sit there, maybe two people, play two people for the day. It's an eight-hour day for school or whatever. And you can see what the heck is going on, and you can relate that outside to whoever cops Absolutely. Or whatever.
3: Donnie, I mean, do you know this system that I found out in Uvalde? They, agreed, they actually did drills on this. And yeah. there's a master key that's supposed to be in a certain place that the cops know about. They go grab a key, it's the wrong key.
11: No, I'm and not talking about I'm talking about a monitor guy, people inside the school or employed by the school that can see who's coming through the doors, who's yes. walking down the hallways. And if there is a door ajar, you know, it shows up. There's you know the technology is you can use it to such an extreme. And then you have your backup, vets or whoever you want. And then you can tell them what's going on. Hey, yeah, sorry. I mean,
3: obviously a video system like that would be great. That's something that should be talked about. I think everybody would work an extra day or a week to provide the funds. And it's not necessary because we make so much tax dollars. We give so many tax dollars to provide the funds to harden every single school. And make school shootings as old hat is skyjacking. We could do it. I'm convinced of it. Everybody's on board for that. My hope is Democrats don't see a deal getting done with the Republicans and then walk away from it because they want it as an election issue. Uh, This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for being here. Don't forget to listen to and watch One Nation, 8 o'clock on Saturday, Fox News.
2: Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade.
3: Thanks so much for being there, everybody. It's the Brian Kill Me Show. We know you're getting set for Memorial Day weekend. We got to finally uh, not take anything for granted any of these holidays when you can be outside, be with family, and not have anything canceled. I understand in the New York area, the Blue Angels are going to do what they always do. And over Jones Beach, that'll be fantastic. Jones Beach may be the finest beach in the country. Uh, and then in uh, New York, too, if you look around where we're at, uh, gas is probably going to be around $5 a gallon on average. $4.59 last year, 3 bucks. You believe this? But 82% of Americans are planning to travel this Memorial Day. 51% are carpooling. I'm not sure if that's an Uber carpool, but first things first. We'll discuss that. The President of the United States on Sunday will be in Uvalde where a horrific shooting took place, killing those preschoolers, 19 of which, two, uh, 21 in all, 19 kids between 8 and 10 years old. Uh, just a quick note here. Talk about the fear among law enforcement is why Suffolk and Nassau County, Long Island, have really responded with force. Suffolk County police have arrested. uh, That's New York here. Uh, If you look at Long Island, probably it's the 20th biggest market in the country. Suffolk County police arrested a 16-year-old Bellport High School student after allegedly making online threats of a massive shooting At his school, the teenager who has identified his identity is being held. Obviously, he's under 18. He said multiple people called 911 about the May 26th threat. Um, So they've detected they picked this guy up. It happened the day after uh, we found out about the Uvalde shooting that that took the lives of these innocent kids. So before we get to our first guest, uh, who's going to talk about how to talk to your kids about this horrific crime and Lee Greenwood uh, at the bottom of the hour, let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know It's Brian's Big Three Sponsored by LifeVac Save a life in a choking emergency Visit LifeVac.net to learn more And use code BK10 to save 10%
0: Number three what we now have is a very clear pattern in both the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank scandal. Both of them originated with the Clinton campaign. But it went over to the FBI. Apparently, according to this agent, James Comey and the rest of the FBI were chomping at the bit. Yeah, it's
3: unbelievable, right? Which is the revelations from the dorm trial. Well, it wraps up. The defendant Mike uh, Sussman decides not to take the stand. What we know about the trial, what we've learned because of the trial, and Durham chances of getting conviction. We'll talk about it.
0: Number
11: two.
0: We are going to extend a hand of partnership to those who have been sitting on the sidelines, to those who have chosen to side
4: with the gun lobby. I think there's a sense of urgency that maybe we didn't feel before. We're going to try to work th- through this and see if we can find that common ground
3: yeah that is a little different than chris murphy wants he wants to say the nra is holding the republicans hostage not the case is this the time we look at guns and school safety bipartisan talks underway through memorial day we'll keep you up to date i want to find out what you think should be in or out of this
1: Number
5: one. Multiple witnesses that I spoke with said as soon as they heard gunshots, they immediately jumped in a car, got to Rob Elementary, and that's where they were met with law enforcement. They couldn't get into the school. And multiple parents told me that they were frustrated by law enforcement inaction and don't understand why it took so long to get to the shooter.
3: Jorge Ventura, Daily Caller reporter. It's a lot of questions. Funerals begin today for 19 grade schoolers and two teachers, which is beyond sad. But what I know about the timeline is taking down the Uh, and taking down the killer has me beyond mad. We're going to talk about this and elaborate on all this stuff and why we were told such uh, inaccurate things for the last two days. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Dr. Michelle Borba. Uh, Dr. Michelle Borba is uh, the perfect person to have right now. She's an educational psychologist, best-selling author of several books. Her latest is Thrivers, the surprising reasons why some kids struggle and others shine. Dr. Borba, one thing is is pretty clear, no matter what your grades are, if you're a kid watching this or experienced this shooting, this carnage, you are going to be forever affected. Can you give us an idea in what way?
1: Uh, multiple ways. Number one, we've got children who we do know one in three is already having some kind of a mental health problem during this pandemic. That means their stress and anxiety is already going up. But the second thing that we're worried about is what an incredible psychologist discovered long time ago. It's called Mean World Syndrome. And that is if you continue to see the world in your view as a mean, scary place, and you only see the bad of it, your entire image of the world, the rest of your life becomes more pessimistic. And that's going to really erode your confidence, your happiness, and your view of the life. And that's, oh God, our children deserve a heck of a lot better, don't they?
3: I would think so. So now we find out this, uh, this, this 18-year-old, one in targeted elementary school like Sandy Hook, uh, like the Sandy Hook shooter did, Adam Lanza. And we don't know yeah. much about this kid yet, but he walks into the school, locks himself in a classroom, and kills everybody in it. We know some of the horrific stories from these kids, and more will emerge. One said, my friend got killed, and I wanted to give the gunman a sense that I was shot at least, so I took some of my friend's blood and wiped it on myself, and he ended up walking past me. I mean, think about what that kid's life is going to be. She, she is, yeah. uh, I think, nine years old.
1: Yeah, we're talking post-traumatic stress, obviously, and it, it will erode their their image of the world forever. Each one of those children clearly needs major, major help right now in terms of counseling. Uh, but also, look at that child. What a brilliant kid to be able to to come up with a plan at that moment and still be able to think when you're in absolute terror mode. And how you're about this story? Yeah. yeah. And how about yeah. the fact
3: that she took her teacher, who was, who was shot dead, took the teacher's cell phone, and then called 911.
1: Yes. Yes. Those are the kids who we do know have the, the, the skills that were are coping and resilient. But what we now need to do is wrap our arms around all of our kids to be able to keep them calm and safe because... Yes, those children are there exposing right there in that moment, but we're also realizing in today's digital world, almost every one of our kids also has access to those images, and they are repeated images. The one thing I'd caution a parent is be very careful about a young child, because we knew after 9-11 that when images kept forming of those those, uh, planes going into the towers, many young children thought those were continued kinds of attacks. So the first thing is we've got to stay calm for our kids' sake, and we've got to listen to what they know or hear what they know and make sure that we are giving them the information because a lot of the information that they're hearing is, believe it or not, actually far worse than what you're seeing, if that's even possible. But that's what's happening with children's little minds. They can't process this information. Uh,
3: true. You have a model. It's an acronym TALK. Uh, and each, each letter of talk means something. Number one with the T, talk about the tragic event. So if you're the parent of a kid, or uh, since it's so relatable, since you look at these kids and say, that could be my classmate, my friend, an eight-year-old finds out that kids were targeted, they can't get their head around the fact that an adult would want to kill a kid, and they're hearing these stories, how do you get a kid to talk that wasn't even directly involved in this?
1: The first thing is children mirror us and they're gonna be far more likely to open up if we're calm ourselves. It's not a face-to-face conversation. Maybe it's sitting down next to a child. With boys, we know, young ones in particular, if you do something like play Legos or you're shooting baskets or something like that, they're more likely to open up. Second of all, you may start the conversation with what are your friends saying? What have you heard? As opposed to start, how are you feeling about this? Just the more indirect version, what you're trying to do is just help your child open up to you so you can hear where he is and help him process this information.
3: Yeah, so the next one is uh, assess, which is the A. Assess how the child is coping. You know your kid, right?
1: You do. The fascinating thing about this, Brian, is that every child, we're shocked that every child handles these things differently. And many parents are telling me, I I didn't expect him to be so verbal, or I didn't expect her, she's always so verbal, to retreat. So keep tuning into your child, assessing how they're coping, not just now, but we're finding that some kids, it takes a couple of days for them to all of a sudden be stressed. And you may not realize that that the reason that they are becoming angry or frustrated or stressed or irritable or reticent or pulling back, you don't know how your child is going to cope. You just keep tuning in and you'll be able to help your child be able to slowly uh, be able to process this information and handle it in a way that they don't feel quite as stressed. Are you watching your child, for instance, lose sleep? Are you seeing a change in eating behaviors? All of a sudden, she's more clingy. She doesn't want to go out or leave. I don't want to go to school, Mom. Those are kinds of things that could be red flags. Changes that are different from your child's normal are also changes that you should be tuning into.
3: The good news is uh, places like Florida, they're done with school. uh, And in New York, they're going to be done in a couple of weeks. I mean, that school in Texas was about to close. They just had their graduation. Uh, Maybe that's why the door was open, some have speculated. Uh, But in New York had a few more weeks. So the kid, your your, your son or daughter might turn around and go, yeah, I'm not going. Uh, I'm not safe. And that brings us to the next one. Listen. Listen to the concerns they have. Hear hear them out.
1: Listen, and I think the key on this one is honor silence. Because very often what happens with younger kids or even a teen, they're trying to process some extremely difficult information. So are we, for heaven's sakes. But for a child, he can't get his grasp on what the heck is going on. So your model is almost talk, then stop and push pause and listen, then talk and stop and push pause and listen. This is also not a one-time marathon conversation. You want to have short little conversations for younger kids. You make it age-appropriate or maturity-appropriate. But you you say, I'm always here for you. Let's keep talking about this. When you hear something, let's figure this out. Monitor that news. Please monitor it carefully. Tune it off. Turn it off. We do know that middle school kids, fascinating, we thought they were okay. They say that one of the things after 9-11, it was, they couldn't stand the late breaking news that was all of a sudden coming out. Here's a new thing that we've just heard without an adult sitting there calmly helping them process it. Right. So they may not be asking you, you just need to be empathetic and tune into this is what my child is probably feeling or probably needs right now. Your calm presence right. is the key. Uh,
3: Dr. Michelle is our guest educational psychologist talking about how to talk to your kids about this and adults. Uh, and lastly, you have Kindle, uh, Uh, hope that despite the horror, life will go on. Let them know life will go on.
1: Yeah, we learned that, that if you can do, it's called altruistic suffering. It sounds so lofty, but it actually does help. If a child can do something, for instance, the Parkland kids, what you saw them do was get out there and mobilize. They were part of a school shooting, but you saw many of those kids became active. They said it didn't stop the pain, but it helped a little bit. In certain cases, it may be, what's the tool that's going to help your child cope? Do you pray at night together? Do you pack some teddy bears and send them off to the child with your child? Do you plant a tree? What's the ritual that's going to help your child? Because what we do know also is if your child can help you, you can figure out some ways to cope now. Your child will be able to use those same strategies, Brian, the rest of their life to help with
3: grief so so we watched this buffalo shooter plot and plan, and he already was uh, interviewed by the state officials, and they said, you know we, when, it, when they found out he was trying to threaten to blow up his school and kill himself, he got evidently after two and a half hours of analysis, they thought at seventeen years old he was okay, they were wrong, yeah. and at eighteen yeah. he publishes a mini a manifesto of one hundred and eighty pages, and he goes yeah. up and plots and plans to uh, shoot as many black people as possible up in Buffalo. 218 18-year-olds attack in the last three weeks. How do we stop this action? What are the red flags, not just for gun use, but to know that that kid is not only different from the other kids, he's not only quieter, uh, but he might be a killer?
1: Here's what we do know. Unfortunately, I've been studying school shootings since Columbine the fbi and the secret service have done the best reports on 38 school shooters and they found that there's not one profile but we do know something about them and that is it's a slow gradual process where a child learns the stages of what criminologists call violentization the step one is that you don't have that strong accurate uh, integrity Or empathy, and it starts to wane. Many of these kids, believe it or not, were uh, in fact, three-fourths of them were bullied along the way. Nobody stood into them. I'm not giving them any credit for anything in life here, but that bullying can make a difference, and we need to stop that at a very early age. If we start to hear kids planning or saying things, I'm going to kill someone, for heaven's sake, take it seriously. Almost every one of these kids, you'll notice even this last one, Do report and they do tell. Now they are reporting and telling on Facebook, on text, and we need to be able to get Facebook, all of our online sources, to be able to look at those and red flag them and do not wait because that is one of the protocols of a a killer. They want notoriety, and at that point, they are meticulous in their planning. This is never an overnight concept. They plan.
3: Interesting. Dr. Borba, the other thing is – is that, well, okay, a 17-year-old, he's a little one. You know, his classmates knew he was a little different. Some looked at him and said, man, that guy's got to screw loose. That's a pedestrian term, not something you would do. This guy's a little dangerous. He makes me weird. He, he makes me eerie to be around him. And then he turns 18. And whatever problems and analysis he went through, because other people had concerns, it is expunged. And then when he walks yep. down, because I say he, because almost all guys, when he walks down to the gun store, they look at his background check, and you know what? Okay, I'm going to sell you your first gun, we think. And they sell him the gun, and then he ends up being the Buffalo shooter.
1: Uh, Yes, you and I are on the exact same page. At one point, what we've got to do is start connecting the dots. And that is the school will be able to see some of these. The counselor will be able to see some of these red flags. But can they report to the police? Yeah, in some states they do. The problem is that we do know in some of our past shooters, the police couldn't report to the school. We've got to start connecting the dots at an earlier age because what we are still doing is intervening and not preventing. We have got to be a heck of a lot more proactive. Right. We do know that that all of this can be prevented, uh, that empathy seems to be a core piece of it, and it's a slow slippage where a child – start losing that. So humanity mm-hmm. no longer is part and parcel. It's that apathy and complacency. And uh, right. they're no longer seen as human beings.
3: And for two years, they've been in some cases, if they don't have a, a secure family, uh, they've been alone. Uh, and they're even yes. more of a shut in because of the pandemic. Yes. Dr. Borba, we can go yes. on for an hour and still not cover everything. But I think you help people a lot. Dr. Michelle Borba, thank you.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you.
3: You got it. When we come back, your turn. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. We still have not talked about the, uh, the Durham report and Lee Greenwood at the bottom of the hour.
2: This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. According to the
7: information I have, he went in at 1140. He walked and I'm going to approximate 20 feet. Turns left into a schoolroom, into a classroom. Officers are there. The initial officers, they receive gunfire. They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. But we have officers calling for additional resources.
3: And the problem is, they waited outside an hour. Uh, and that's what it, it must have felt like a lifetime, maybe quick. Uh, to the families, it was way too long. And to me, on first blush, it was my kid in there. And I even thinking about it, you got to be able to go in. And the more police officers I talked to, even if they didn't have the elite training, you can't wait. They had to wait an hour for Bortech to get there, the elite Border Patrol guys. They ended up going in there with at least four, uh, a stack of four behind a shield. And they end up taking this guy out who was shooting away. So uh, Rob Elementary School, uh, the Facebook post, uh, was out there at 1143. Said the school's under attack. Uh, and local police arrive on the scene 1144, and he wasn't taken out until 106. Parents were begging police to go in 1154, and you see that on video. In fact, they stun stunned gun some of the parents that refused to listen.
2: That makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
10: There's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say.
3: We are a talk channel, and this is a talk show, but when you have a guy like uh, Lee Greenwood in studio, to set the table, we go to the most iconic song. Uh, Maybe Behind the Star Spangled Banner is the most patriotic song ever written. Lee Greenwood is here, country music singer you know, uh, and he just was able to sing that song, uh, Proud American, on our show uh, just a short time ago, and here he is. Lee, welcome. Thank you very much, Brian. In studio. This is
10: a rare treat. Thank you. This is cool. I don't think I've been in this studio before. I've done Fox Nation several times, but not in the studio with you.
3: Right. No, no. I'm honored (laughs) and and privileged. They just kind of built, they did did this. They have the whole radio. They have uh, Channel 115 on Sirius, which is 24-hour news, national news, kind of like the 1010 wins locally. So they built this whole thing for the talk studios, too. So it's
10: relatively new because the pandemic hit. Oh. Uh, and everyone left. Oh, the pandemic! Oh my gosh! You know we're going to be traveling out of the country here shortly, and there's still some countries where we're going that require masks. And it's like you kind of forget after a while when the mask is gone. It's like, well, whew, it's over, and but it ain't over. I mean, still other countries. You know, how require. did you deal
3: with it personally and professionally?
10: Um, I hated it first of all, and and particularly we flew to uh, Africa. For our family vacation last year, we had to wear the mask from the time we left Nashville through New York, through Paris. And and France was more uh, picky about the uh, documents we had to fill out for COVID than Kenya. And we got to Kenya and there was no mask. It was fine there. But it it was 24 hours of constant mask through the airplanes, you know, and and the airports. It was awful. Um, In 2020, of course, we had about six or seven shows, most of them outdoors and most in the West Coast. So that was kind of hard, keeping our talents up, you know, during that year. Uh, began to get a little better in 21. And, of course, we're back full strength now.
3: Right. Uh, so, yeah, my, you know, for the most part, I went to two or three events. It was packed uh, merely for the first time. And I realized uh, the trains aren't back. I'm able to get a seat on a train even if I go a minute before on Long Island Railroad. Subways aren't close. And mainly that's crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a crime thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you notice New York a little different now or
10: no? Um, no, or you
3: just come in and out so quick. Yeah,
10: I come in and out, but, but it, it seems normal to me, except for the fact that during the riots, when they closed all those expensive stores, my wife is really pissed off, <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, all of, all of those expensive stores that the glass knocked out and they didn't reopen a lot of them down on fifth Avenue. And I'm like, well, that's too bad, honey. You
3: know? uh, a couple of things, Lee, you would just tell me about your childhood. Yeah. Uh, anything but easy,
11: right?
10: Well, you know, let me just say this. It, it was, it was perfect. My 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 father joined the navy after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I was born in '42, so he was deployed by the time I was born. My mother divorced him because she didn't understand his commitment to the country and to the service. Now a lot of families went through that, but that left my mother with two kids: my older sister and I. And my sister still alive lives in Boise, Idaho. Is three years older than me, and my mother was a piano player at night. She was a comptometer operator for Standard Oil during the daytime and a cleric for Southern Pacific. So holding down three jobs, I rarely knew her. I didn't know my father until I was in my teens. But I was raised by my grandparents. We were sharecroppers, lived on a farm in Sacramento, California. I worked on a farm as a kid You know, growing up. I, I had a great childhood, great role models from my grandparents, and I didn't really want for anything. So if, if you say that I didn't, you didn't
3: have, have any- a t- typical nuclear family, but you had a great-grandparents.
10: And that's all it takes is love. Right. Really? Uh, when did you realize you had musical talent? Five or six, seven, right in there. How? Well, I sang in church, and, and I think that's it. When you first— Realizes you can you can carry a melody, and then you would learn songs off the radio you know, just quickly and start singing along with them. We only you only had you know the old radio with the, the two knobs on it. Right. <laughs> it's like you get to hear some music occasionally. And my grandmother loved the, the music of the Canaries, Hearts Canary. We had a seventy eight vinyl record, and she would listen to that, sit in the chair, and I would try to memorize the first song that I ever memorized was from a seventy eight record. It was Stan Kenton, the father of American jazz. It was called Artistry and Rhythm, and we had a spin it piano in the trailer that we lived in in the corner and I was allowed to play that piano every night after I finished my chores uh and my schoolwork and I memorized artistry and rhythm I still remember the melody da 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 de, da, 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 da 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 and I, I got all four parts in my head I was 8 9 wow, 10,
3: ten. then they 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 realized too we we got to like support this but and you end up going to you went to camp, you said, too, right? Well,
10: I mean, it wasn't really support, but my grandmother uh, took charge of my career in a, such a way, and there was fights between my mother and my grandmother about how much leeway they would give me. They really had a strong leash on me, but at the age of 13, 14, I was already playing in nightclubs, and so my grandmother would have the band leader, He'd come and sit in the living room, and we had this uh, Spanish, I would say, let me just call it, what it is a Mexican uh, bass player, and he had hard luck tattooed on his knuckles, ah, a big fella, ah, ah. and he said, if he doesn't come home by 2 a.m. in the morning, he'll never go with you again. Right. And I was very good on the saxophone. And it was, uh, in those years, they had all those rhythm and blues quartets, and every one of them had a tenor saxophone in it. And I was already pretty good at it. And so I would finish, get home, have breakfast downtown North Sacramento, get home in bed by 2.30, be up at 6.30, and go run the baseball track uh, wow. at, at school. You're so, an
3: athlete, too. I was saying
10: the first thing that hit me when I, before I met you— Oh, this guy's an athlete. You're in great shape. Well, thank you. And and at 79, I still feel pretty darn good. I've had a few few surgeries on my knees and back, but that's just structural damage from sports. And I I loved. I wouldn't give a minute of it. I I love my baseball. I love basketball. And I played racquetball for 10 year, 12 years. But
3: I didn't mean to interrupt you because uh, my dad was in a quartet uh, too. I guess he would have been about the same age. He put a band together and paid his way right through uh, college. He had an opportunity to go to uh, Juilliard, but my my his parents said. Uh, No one makes a living in music. So did not support it. He ends up being a chemist at Iona, but played his music to support him through. One of his big regrets was not following through with that. And after he put down the clarinet and saxophone, he knew how good he could be. He hated picking it up again.
10: Well, you know, I've got a I've got a twenty three year old just graduated TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. He'll play piano, you to death. He looks a lot like um, Van Cliburn. As a matter of fact, there's a Van Cliburn uh, room and a, and a contest in in. Uh, at TCU in Fort Worth and uh, he's elected not to do that because he wants to be just a writer. So he was a chancellor scholar because he had a perfect sc- uh, SAT score and science score in high school and he changed from music uh, – from theater to musical composition. So he's going to write music for video games and motion pictures and he's very well qualified. So I think his master's might be in Scotland or somewhere. But he, you know, he, he's going to be a musician. I'm like, son, it's going to be tough, you know. But you can't deny the talent. If I figured he didn't have the talent, I would have deterred him. And his brother is actually pretty talented as a singer, who's now getting a PhD in cancer research at Vanderbilt. Wow. Dalton, who's twenty-seven and just got married, um, but uh, he's his future secured. But I just said to Parker, you know, it may be tough. He said, "It's all right. I'm ready for the ready for the long haul." Right. Do you? So when you. Started in the music. I mean, most people don't make it in music, right? Well, you're right. Yeah. it's Grab the brass ring. You're really lucky. I had two or three shots at it. Brian, you probably don't know this. I was working at a, at a hotel called the Desert Inn in Vegas, and I was working for a female star named Babette DiCastro. And when we traded uh, uh, every every forty minutes, you get a different act on. The other act was called Sandu Scott and the Scotties, and and they'd put on their show and two female acts. So when I finished Babette Castro's act, I joined the other band. We went to Puerto Rico, then New York to do the Ed Sullivan show. So it puts the time frame right for you. So know that was wow. his, and so the drummer Dino Donelli lived in lived in Hoboken. So I stayed with them at that time. New York had uh, Joy Dieter and the Starlighters had a had a. a a new song called The Peppermint Twist. I would come to New York. We see them. It's a dead of winter. I'm getting pneumonia. And I said, guys, I just can't stay in New York. I got to go back to Vegas and go back to work. I did that. Three months later, they put the band back together, and they became the Young Rascals. So I missed that gold brass. I missed that brass ring. It's interesting that Felix Cavalier wrote all those songs, now lives in Nashville. And he just did my 40 Years of Hits uh, special, which Fox Nation carries, by the way. Uh, uh, Lee Which Greenwood. you're
3: see, being seen on Fox Nation right yeah, now. Proud yeah, proud to be an
10: American. And uh, and so Felix lives in Nashville. So it's full circle. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, I'd say 1,000 to 1, maybe more, 10,000 to 1 if you get the brass ring. You know? Right.
3: Uh, but would you say your work ethic has a lot to do with it? And oh, absolutely. You, and, and did you have a plan B? No. Is that the key? No. No, no net? Get like rid your, of the net?
10: Like your dad. I mean, I, I think – there was opportunities. My stepfather was a uh, was a contractor, Louis Dantonoli. I loved him, uh, and I could have went into building. I like I, I like I liked that. I could have went into farmer work, but gosh dang, that's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you may have to get up at three in the morning, but for, for a farmer, you're up at three and you're out in the field. I end up
3: putting on makeup in a suit.
10: Yeah, exactly. It's a little harder. And I said, no, I don't want to be a farmer. And so, and music came so easy, though. Oh my gosh! But I was scouted by the Dodgers, and I thought, well, maybe baseball. Uh, but I was 140 pounds, dripping wet, 5'7". I th- nah, I'm not going to
3: have a career in baseball. Well, there were some, some guys Your, are your, your dimensions. Davey Lopes wasn't much bigger than that, right? Second base? Well,
10: sure. I mean, right. there, there's always that. I mean, Walter Payton, you know, I mean, there's yeah. always an exception. But I didn't want to be that exception.
3: All right, but you are exceptional. When we come back, uh, Lee Greenwood tells us the story of God Bless the USA uh, and what, where that song has taken you in your life and the presidents and uh, officials you've had a chance to meet. Don't move. Uh, by the way, perfect guest today, Lee, not a coincidence, with Memorial Day a few days away. Uh, one of the many people in our country that does not have to be told the meaning of this holiday. Don't move.
2: Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
3: We're back, Lee Greenwood. Our guest, Lee Greenwood, was kind enough to do the the, uh, Fox and Friends concert series, the first one to kick off today on Fleet Week. And of course, uh, God bless the USA. Uh, And Proud American is what Lee Greenwood is known for. You think about Lee Greenwood, it's red, white, and blue, but he's really a country music star, first and foremost. When you talk about that song that you played for us uh, today, what has that done for your career?
10: Well, many people would say it's an umbrella, Uh, it is not. It's not a parachute, that's for sure. Uh, I'm an artist. I'm a singer and a writer, and I'll be that until I'm done. And uh, God Bless the USA happened to be one of those songs along the way that I wrote because I wanted to write something about my country. But it was on – the first album it was on was called You Got a Good Love Coming we put $25,000 in that video and filmed it in the London Strange Station and Patrick Duffy was a guest uh, as a cameo to open up that Aquaman. video. Yeah. You can get, yeah, you can get that video on, on YouTube if you look for it. you got a good love coming. And so, when we finished that album, we were actually recording in Nashville as a Nashville artist. We didn't want LA actually controlling what we do. And I was on the label with Reba McIntyre, George Strait, the Oak Ridge Boys, and Barbara Mandrell and we all had the same mindset. We are a Nashville artist. However, I was competing with George Strait for for chart positions because his uh a and man ran MCA and so I was a little hard getting past his record so I said let's go out to, and have get LA behind us so we took that album you got a good love coming to Irving Azoff in Los Angeles and had them listen to it it was him that made the choice to release God bless USA it would never have been it would never have been heard
3: you think it would have been buried on that album
10: yeah yeah it was just another song and,
3: so, and, and then when you released what happened
10: well, the power of radio, of course, you know, it, it, and, and it, was, it was aimed at July 4th. They released it a little bit late. It went number six, I think, on the chart. Uh, and then after July 4th, the patriotism wanes, and then the song was not popular until it became Song of the Year in Nashville at the CMA, because it started getting legs. And, uh, and, and, and as much as for the National Guard and the military as anything, because they immediately adopted me, you know, as their hero. And I, I did like 15 USO tours after when I came did, to When did
3: Reagan take notice?
10: Um. Th- yeah, the, the campaign for Re- I'm a Reaganite anyway. I'm from California, so I worked on his gubernatorial campaign. Even you though I, I was a nobody, yeah. And and then uh, they never forgot that. But of course, when USA came out, they called me and they said, uh, "We want you to uh, play the president's dinner for Ronald Reagan." So I did that. And uh, then I did the '84 convention as well uh, for Ronald, and then I became Nancy Reagan's champion. And and then uh, at, we had a performance at the White House, and then I met 41, who was Vice President at the time. And then I sang for five presidents at the Reagan Library. It was it was Reagan, Bush, Nixon, Carter, and Ford wow. all standing behind me while I was singing. I was like, man, this is pretty awesome, you know. Wow. And uh, and and then it, it's like it, it uh, you had the Gulf War. And General Schwarzkopf used it as a, as a song of the war, if you will. Uh, and then Katrina, it became a song for unity. And then, of course, the attack on America in 2001. And as you know, Brian, I was here three times, once for the Fireman's Memorial at Yankee Stadium, uh, the policeman's Memorial at Carnegie Hall, and then I came back for the fourth game of the World Series, which was kind of cool, uh, the Yankees against the Diamondbacks. And the Yankees couldn't pull it out the seventh game. They finally lost to, to the Diamondbacks in Arizona. But that was a part of rebuilding New York. But since then, there's just been more and more and more need for unity. And every time I do this, I come to New York and I sing for Fox and we get, you know, on the network. And I have so many people coast to coast who have texted me this morning on my phone. It's blowing up. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, we're so proud of you, you know, right. for, for, for getting there and singing.
3: People worried about uh, patri- is the patriotism still there in America. Can you par- can compare it to the 1980s when – you know, we put the hostage crisis behind us, we begin to it becomes clear we're going to win the Cold War. Uh, Reagan was such an optimistic guy, wonderful speaker. Uh, he won by 40-plus 40 state 49 states right, for right. reelection. So can you p- compare the two generations?
10: Uh, let me put it this way. In World War I and World War II, every household had somebody serving the military. I think when you move on to Vietnam. It was maybe every block had three or four soldiers. As you move on to the war on terror, it's maybe 100 people in a city. So it's less and less people who see the value of the military and therefore patriotism begins to wane. You have to remember how our freedom is protected. It's the military and not enough people do that. So if you compare the generations, right. the respect for the country and the flag is – if you're going to kneel for the flag, I suggest you go to church and kneel. That's where you'll find re, you know, where your god is. And, and, and I hate it that the NFL is is one of those that didn't step up immediately and say, you know what? I appreciate your cause, but this is not the place you kneel. They went the other way.
3: Lee Greenwood, our guest. Uh, Lee, When I thought about you, too, when the statues start coming down. People now have a problem with Jefferson at and William and & Mary when he went to college. Uh, people are defiling George Washington's uh, statue. I saw that they took down um, not exactly a founding father, but an iconic figure, Daniel Boone. They want his name off elementary schools. Uh, Lincoln. Well, what Teddy Roosevelt moved out from the Museum of Natural History? They took his, took him off his horse, even though he and his dad built the Museum of Natural History. It was their idea. What do you think about when that those things happen?
10: Oh, Brian, we're two white guys here talking on the phone. I I'd sometimes, uh, as I look back on it, you know, you have to have an African American in the culture uh, in the room to talk about his culture and the, and his and his his. Um, uh, a perception of what's going on. I, I disagree with anybody that wants to remove a monument. I don't think that's the right thing. If you want to erect another monument next to it and say this is my heritage and my, add a plaque to it. Exactly. Uh, let me just let me just you know give my opinion. Okay, great. I'll take your opinion, but don't take down my history because it's the history of the United States. I mean, it, you can't erase history.
3: So I did the President and Freedom Fighter, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the battle to save America's soul, and at that same time. There's a protest around Frederick Douglass's statue <laughs> because the statue, the, the Lincoln statue, that Douglass dedicated to Lincoln 10 years after his death had an African-American breaking free of chains. The best answer is what you just gave. Leave that statue. That's where Douglass stood. And then put one behind it. Exactly. Because even back then, Douglass was like, yeah, I don't love this statue. But he understood what, it, what they tried to do with,
10: and was the uh, slaves paid for it and okay, the design. Yeah. America- so that's a way to do it. Absolutely. America's changing. It's it again, every time we have, you know, like the shooting in, uh, 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 buffalo and and it becomes racial i just I, you know, I know it sets us back another 40 years
3: absolutely but hopefully we move forward lee greenwood it's a thrill to have you here i know you have a big weekend really what do you want to promote real quick
10: uh black cat fireworks have a wonderful memorial day weekend and go buy some black cat fireworks also uh do our adopt a vet program come to my website leegreenwood.com and adopt a vet you'll find out what it is all right lee thanks so much great to see you thanks brian bag it
2: From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here,
3: everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade show coming to you from 48th and Sixth in Midtown Manhattan. We're heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in the Ukraine. Uh, we're going to talk to Jack Curry at the bottom of the hour, studio analyst for Yes Network, two-time New York. Uh, time bestseller, and he's got a brand new book out called "Swing and Hit: What Nine Innings of Baseball Taught Me." It's really about Paul O'Neill, but Jack Curry, a baseball aficionado in his own right. We need a little bit of a break, don't we? And uh, if you happen to notice, the Yankees and many people in the off season were saying, "You got to tear this team apart." It's just underachieving. They made the wild card last two years. They don't hit in the clutch. It's an all-or-nothing team with a, uh, with an aging uh, staff. They're the best record in baseball. Jack Curry on that, and Shannon Bream. Is going to be with us in a matter of moments, and I want her to break down not only what's happening in the world right now, but also what's happening with the dorm trial, which is really coming to a close. It's uh, Michael Sussman. He is guilty as the day is long. Why? Some say he might get off, and also why it might not make that much of a difference. Intriguing, right? Let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three.
0: Number three. What we now have is a very clear pattern in both the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank scandal. Both of them originated with the Clinton campaign. When it went over to the FBI, apparently, according to this agent, James Comey and the rest of the FBI were chomping at the bit.
3: Uh, Yeah, they couldn't wait to see the seventh floor. Durham trial wraps up. Sussman decides not to take to stand what we now know about the trial, what we now know about the investigation, and how justice uh, really should be served if Sussman is found guilty because he was caught dead to rights, but why it might not matter.
0: Number two. We are going to extend a hand of partnership to those who have been sitting on the sidelines, to those who have
4: chosen to side with the gun lobby. I think there's a sense of urgency that maybe we didn't feel before we're going to try to work through this and see if we can find that common ground
3: yeah chris murphy uh the senator from connecticut you'll be tested because republicans will come to the table if you're reasonable on things that will help stop these school shootings is this time to look at guns and school safety in a bipartisan way they will discuss it all throughout and they'll zoom it in a bipartisan way and we'll see if they have a deal or if everyone's just going to play midterm politics
1: Number
5: one. Multiple witnesses that I spoke with said as soon as they heard gunshots, they immediately jumped in a car, got to Robb Elementary, and that's where they were met with law enforcement. They couldn't get into the school. Multiple parents told me that they were frustrated by law enforcement inaction and don't understand why it took so long to get to the shooter.
3: Uh, We still don't. Jorge Ventura, Daily Caller reporter. Funerals begin for the 19 grade schoolers and two teachers who, it's beyond sad, uh, will be laid to rest. And you know what gets you beyond mad? The fact that the killer was able to last an hour. Uh, Let's bring in Shannon Bream, Fox News legal correspondent, anchor of uh, Fox News at Night, and the author of Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak, Lessons on Faith uh, from Nine Biblical Families. Shannon, welcome
8: great to
3: be with you brian shannon i don't even know i mean your show starts at midnight you're reporting throughout the day but i was supposed to go on with john roberts and sandra smith so i'm watching the whole press conference thinking it's going to be quick but certainly impactful i did not expect uh, victor escon to say this uh, so many things that we thought were true that ended up not being true about the shooter listen to this cut to so
7: right now you know during the investigation it appears it was unlocked so we're going to look at that and try to cooperate that as best as we can.
3: We also thought the shooter was, going to be, was confronted and was forced to drop a bag of ammunition. Cut one.
7: It was reported that a school district police officer confronted the suspect that was making entry. Not accurate. He walked in unobstructed initially. So from the grandmother's house to the bar ditch to the school, into the school, he was not confronted by anybody.
3: Killer uh, kills his grandmother. She calls 911 with a bullet in her face. 11.28, the killer's uh, truck arrives uh, and crashes in the school. Uh, at eleven thirty, nine one one 911 call comes in. There's a problem. Uh, Ramos lingers around the shooter outside the school for 12 minutes, firing shots before he goes into the school unobstructed. Nobody was there, and the door was open. And it gets worse from there. Shannon, what's your reaction? We've seen so many of these school investigations What do you think about the fact that we were so inaccurate for so long?
8: It's so puzzling. Listen, I can understand that you can say, we got to interview all these first responders. We got to debrief everybody. We got to figure this out. That I totally get. But the complete fabrication of a human being that wasn't even there who allegedly exchanged gunfire with the uh, suspect, uh, that that just is created out of thin air, is baffling to me because we have the witness accounts who have said, we saw the truck crash. I called. People tried to go help the guy. He started shooting at them. We saw him going to the school. I don't know who invented the school resource officer. I mean, um, like we always say, the fog of war is obviously very, very confusing, and there's so much that we're going to have to unpack, and unfortunately, that's going to involve talking to these precious little kids who survived this thing, but I just don't know how things get um, you know, entered into the equation that never even existed. I mean, we had um, Lieutenant Oliveras with the Texas Department of Safety on last night, and I said, let's walk through this. Let's talk about what you do know and how things came up that you didn't know and and where you are now. And we talked about these parents who were furious, who have video, who showed up there. Um, you know, one woman says she was handcuffed. The marshals say it's not true. Another father was tackled to the ground. Uh, there are video of these things, of people hysterical. Um, you know, and there have got to be questions. If for no one else, for those parents, they deserve it, they have a right to it, and we've got to get to the bottom of it.
3: Yeah, I mean, the way they were treated, I saw the video. You see him being stun, uh, stun-gunned, and you also uh, you see somebody being arrested when the parent tried to get on a bus to see their kid. And then they were evidently part of the timeline that's been accepted is 1154. The parents start begging police to get into Mm -hmm. the building at 106. uh, Facebook shows Uvalde police uh, um, and the shooter in custody, but he was never in custody. He was dead. They drag him to another room. He killed everybody in that room. So then then the vortex shows up and they're the special operators with the shield that go in. Uh, The question is, and I've talked to people that we both know, that are police officers, they say you go in even if you just have a gun, Kevlar vest, and there's pictures on their website with uh, tactical equipment. So I don't know where that equipment was at the time. Those questions have to be answered. But most importantly, Shannon, so, we, so how we handle it the next time? We are supposed to learn learned a ton in 1999 from Columbine, but in some ways we don't seem to
8: learn. Yeah, because, you know, we've asked and you have asked, I'm sure, uh, many, many law enforcement experts and officers and people who served and are now serving in the field. Wasn't that the consensus after Columbine that if there's an active shooter or shooters inside and there are law enforcement um, people with guns on site, they go in? And again and again, they've all told me the same thing. That was the change. That is the policy. That's how you engage with the active shooter. If there are defenseless children inside, you don't wait that's what we learned after columbine so There are just so many questions. Now, law enforcement will tell you and people confirm on-site witnesses that they were working around to other classrooms, breaking out windows, getting kids out away from where they knew the shooter was. So it's not as if nothing was happening. They were evacuating people. They were doing everything that they could on that front. You know, what I was pressing on last night with Lieutenant Oliveras is, but what about where you knew he was? And I asked him, I said, there have been reports that officers went in and engaged with the guy. Is that true? Do we believe that to still be true? and he said, yes, they were in the hallways trying to figure things out. In there, they got engaged with gunfire and retreated from that point, but they did engage with him. So, But that's a full hour before Bortak shows up and goes in and takes him out. And people are still hearing gunshots inside at that point. And I cannot imagine as a parent how absolutely hysterical I would be for an hour, unable to yeah. find my child and hearing gunshots.
3: I will say this. This is what has been brought up to me by – someone we both know, is that you go in, uh, that's what you're trained to do. Don't tell me you don't have trained mm-hmm. enough or trained wrong. That's what you're trained to do. You know you're in the line of fire for everything from a traffic stop uh, to something like this. There's always danger. That's the nature of the position. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that I'm trained to do it, but that's one thing you know about cops. They put themselves in harm's way on a daily basis. That's why they get the it's respect they by, by by so many. The other thing is you don't know how many of those kids could have been saved if we got to them right away.
8: Right. Right. And that that will haunt people because, you know, you have the account from the one little girl who laid on top of her friend and played dead and said her friend was still breathing for a while. And I I, I did not hear that. That that is true.
3: That's the first time I'm hearing that. Well,
8: well, this is one little girl in an account and I'm trying to remember um, which media outlet it was, but she actually survived and she um, told her parents or told some adults that her friend was still alive. She tried to lay on top of her to pretend like she was dead but that by the time it was all over, her friend had not made it. So whether she survived 30 seconds or 30 minutes, we just don't know. And that's, like I said at the beginning, the horrible thing is that these kids who survived this are, are having to be debriefed. But I couldn't live with that as a parent, thinking about my child maybe could have made it out.
3: Yeah, uh, a couple of things, too. I mean, one thing, the grandmother evidently is is awake, is not going to die, but is not getting out of the hospital anytime soon, is able to write things down. She might be able to fill mm-hmm. in the blanks on what caused this what the signs were. Evidently, he wasn't going to graduate. She wanted to take his phone back. He had a part-time job at Wendy's. He shoots her in the face, takes her truck, and then you know what he did. So the question is, two stupid question. I want to get to the Durham trial, too. But now, you know, we've been through this before, and now the Democrats are going to say it's all the NRA's fault and Republicans who are subservient to the NRA, which is an insult to all of our intelligence, especially if you know what happened to the NRA over the last few years. They're almost powerless in Washington. Josh Holmes said this about possible some bipartisan legislation. Cut 24. You know he's the former chief of staff to Senator McConnell.
5: But I think what this effort is is to try to
10: be responsive. It's not simply not enough to just sort of throw up your hands because there are good ideas. That are out there. I think Republicans augur more closely to hardening security around the schools. Obviously, Democrats have had a long-standing want in the in the gun uh, reform or you know gun control space. Right. And as these facts emerge, like I say, that it is not irrelevant what the ultimate facts on the ground were in terms of how that bu-
3: bipartisan coalition comes together. So bipartisan, we know that Mitt Romney seems to be in center. Collins seems to be in center. Cornyn seems to be in. Uh, they they wanted to try to uh, do something, but not gratuitously. Harden the targets across the country, provide the funding to do it. And red flag laws seem to have everybody intrigued, especially after these last two shootings.
8: Yeah, and listen, if there were easy answers, they would have figured this out uh, a long time ago. So it's not easy. And, um, you know, like everybody thinks, and when you come to the table to negotiate over something like this, no one's going to get 100 percent of what they want. I think every single American is for anything they think would actually – Factually, have made a difference yep. in any of these cases, and that's the big thing. These people, this this shooter was breaking multiple state and federal laws at the time this happened, including shooting his grandmother, including shooting innocent children, and um, some of them, many of them, still recovering. I mean, this is a psycho who was not going to go consult the law books. So then you talk about access, whether it's to guns or to the school. We had a mom on from Texas last night who said she um after um, you know Newtown was so determined to figure out how to do this, and she said you know they fought and fought in their community for one thing main thing was to get an armed officer at every single school. then they fought for things like single point of entry and exit, and other things that will make a real difference in hardening this school. Because if somebody is psychotic enough, they will steal a gun, they will do any number of things that we've seen people do. Um, So we have to look on all sides of the equation and see what would actually make a difference. Um, Red flag laws, um, I think a lot of people want to investigate that and see how that could work. Unfortunately, I think with the Buffalo shooter and with the Uvalde shooter, I don't know that there was a criminal past or mental health history that was documented somewhere that would have Triggered a red flag in either case.
3: Shannon, you're the lawyer, um, but, but evidently he did have a psychological interview because he's threatened to—the Buffalo right. shooter, because he threatened to blow mm-hmm. up his school and kill him. I mean, shoot up the school and, and shoot himself, and after two and a half hours with state officials, uh, he turns 18 and still able to get a gun, nothing on his record.
8: Right. And I think that's the thing. If you don't have an official adjudication or something where you've been deemed to have a mental illness or a threat to society, if it's an interview, that's probably not going to show up anywhere. That's not, it's just not going to ping in a background check. But for these red flag laws where we talk about taking away guns from people who already have them, there's the big due process argument. In some states, they take the guns first and then you get a hearing. And listen, if you've got a kid or a neighbor or somebody who is, you know, not well, that sounds like a great idea. But you have to look all the way through this. What if it's um, you have a bad breakup and someone lies about you and says you're crazy and threatening them and they Not come true. and take your guns out of spite or you know, a coworker who has revenge for you? And those are horrible decisions to try to make because if we want to encourage people to step up <laughs> and say if someone seems unwell to you, let's get the guns out of their house. And so how lawmakers navigate through that and find something that's workable is going to be exceptionally difficult. But again, that's what we elect them to do.
3: I hear you. Uh, I want to real quick go to the Durham trial. It's supposed to wrap up today. Michael Sussman mm-hmm. will not stand there, will not stand trial. But from um, from what you know, when Sussman's on text messages and says to James Baker, the uh, Jim Baker, the lawyer at the FBI, I'm coming just to represent myself, and then he talks about this Russian bank connection to Donald Trump, which ended up being nothing – and then he turns it over to be investigated and they tell everyone, I cannot tell you who gave me this because he came here on his own. And that means that they start investigating this as legitimate as opposed to somebody who works for the Hillary Clinton camp. You would think that that would be enough to convict Michael Sussman. But many people do not think he's going to be convicted um, because the evidently the FBI he used the Justice Department as a reference, in order to move this investigation forward. That was also false. It kind of muddied the waters. What do you think, Shannon?
8: Well, and the fact that Durham, you know, showed the jury that um, he billed the Hillary Clinton campaign for that meeting of the FBI. I mean, there are a lot of things that seem to make Sussman's case for him. But you got to remember this jury. Um, the DC area is is heavily political. We know a number of the jurors either donated to Hillary Clinton's campaign or were supportive. Um, you know, one of the one of the folks has a daughter that plays on a team with Sussman, a sports team. I mean, it all comes down to the jury. That's in any case, whether you're in Paducah, Kentucky, or Washington DC, or anywhere in between, it's all about your jury. So I think you know we just gotta see if if people um, digest the evidence and and come to the same conclusion. Right. Or not, that people watching the trial from the outside, many of them. Exit
3: question, Shannon. Even if he's found innocent, so much was exposed here of the the erratic way in which they approach this, the unprofessional, agenda driven way. Has has Durham accomplished many of his goals?
8: I think that there is such a blackout on covering this trial that a lot of people will have no idea what what Durham has presented. An
3: intentional blackout. This is their (laughs) choose not to pay attention to it.
8: In some squares, I would say yes.
3: Unbelievable. Uh, Shannon Bream, thanks so much. We'll watch you at midnight. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, but watch me on the five first.
3: Oh, yeah. Be on the five first if you don't mind. See yeah, you there. All right, great. Uh, thanks so much. Shannon Bream. Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls. And then we talk a little baseball with Jack Curry.
2: Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
0: We have learned a lot. Uh, it is, there's been questions raised as to why the Mueller investigation did not uncover or reveal some of these details. What we now have is a very clear pattern in both the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank scandal. Both of them originated with the Clinton campaign. The Clinton campaign hid the funding of the Steele dossier. It was recently fined by the FEC for doing that. Um, So they pushed these two separate parallel tracks, both went to the FBI, both went to the CIA, both went to favorable people in the media, and they unleashed this torrent. And the response was, we just need a narrative. Well, you know what? The Clinton people were right, because when it went over to the FBI, apparently, according to this agent, James Comey and the rest of the FBI were chomping at the bit.
3: They just wanted to make sure Trump wasn't elected. Why Robert Mueller? Two-time FBI director could not do that and figure that out, or Andrew Weissman, because he wasn't being honest. They said, these guys are going to go where the investigation leads them. It should have been to a dead end, and we're seeing that. Pay attention to the dorm trial. Anybody that's on the fence with Trump and Clinton or Trump and Obama and Biden, tell them just to take a look at this trial and the summaries that are in it and the conclusions that will emerge. I just hope Sussman's convicted so people don't have a reason to look away.
2: The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
4: They're chanting Paul O'Neill's name. These terrific fans here in New York. Paul O'Neill just bowed his head a moment ago.
3: Uh, that is uh, the fans chanting Paul O'Neill as he said goodbye uh, to his uh, career. They put, uh, put him in the Yankee, basically the Yankee Hall of Fame into Monument in Park. Uh, and that was in 2001. That was Game 5 of the Yankees uh, World Series. With me right now is a man who knows all about that. Uh, he's friends with him, and he wrote a book with him. Uh, it is Jack Curry. Uh, the book is called Paul O'Neill. What nine innings of what baseball taught me, swing and a hit. Uh, Jack, congratulations on another book.
12: Brian, I appreciate it. Always good to talk to you.
3: Yeah, and, uh, and it's a great one. Of course, uh, this is a great time to be an anchor on Yes, you might have noticed. Uh, the Yankees are uh, putting together a, a season when no one expected. Am I right?
12: 32-13 and 13 is hard to predict. I, I will say this. I had them for 95 wins before the season. That was my prediction. I thought they'd go to the postseason. But, Brian, in some respects, they have clearly exceeded expectations. I mean, the guy who pitched last night, Nestor Cortez, is a 36th-round pick who's pitching like an all-star Their Their bullpen until it got decimated with some injuries, I think had been the strength of the team. And then Aaron judge is an MVP. He was playing like an MVP.
3: What about the shortstop? What has he done? Kiner Falefa is a
12: contact hitter who is athletic and plays steady defense. And I think what they like about him, Brian is the first thing I said, he puts the ball in play. Um, he's not going to hit for power. He's probably not going to drive in a ton of runs. But for the most part, he'll catch the balls that are hit to him, give you some steady defense, and he won't strike out. And that's kind of what the Yankees are trying to get a little bit away from. And adding Donaldson and Kiner-Falefa and then bringing back Rizzo, those guys are all above-average contact hitters. They've already got a lot of strikeout guys in the lineup. You need some guys to put the ball in play.
3: And Glaber uh, now is playing like he did two years ago, right?
12: He looks better. Everything is trending in the right direction for him. He's hitting the ball harder. He's hitting the ball in the air more. Um, he's got seven homers already this year. He only hit nine last year. And it looks like, Brian, he's made some hitting adjustments. He's talked about both his lower half and, and the use of his hands more. And just seems like he he's more comfortable at the plate. I think the shortstop thing hurt him last year. He's not a shortstop. I think being back at second base as well has made him more comfortable.
3: And no question. So you write this book, of Paul O'Neill, now as part of the broadcasting team. Um, you know, obviously people watch him play. who we your Yankee fans, really appreciate him. They should know he started with the Reds. Uh, so before we even get into that, I think the first time I remember Paul O'Neal's name being mentioned, being that I grew up in New York, was when they asked Darryl Strawberry, how do you feel like being on the All-Star team? And he said, I'm not the best right, f- right fielder in the league. Paul O'Neal is. And I thought, Paul O'Neill," Because I haven't been watching much of the Reds lately. I'm like, who's Paul O'Neill?" And he was a standout player, uh, when he was traded to the Yankees, already established for Roberto Kelly, correct?
12: Interesting. Yes, Brian, you got it right. And it's interesting that you say that because there are some people who do want to forget about the Reds portion of his career. He won a World Series there. I interviewed all four of his managers for this book, including Pete Rose. Pete Rose glows and gushes when he talks about O'Neill and his athleticism and what he was able to do, both offensively and defensively. And Yes, he had a career before he got to New York. It's just that his New York career ended up being much more productive and profitable than what he did in his years in Cincinnati.
3: And so he wanted to play in the Reds, and he's surrounded by Pete Rose, the player, uh, Dave Concepcion, the shortstop, right? I mean, Tony Perez was still around. The Reds still had the remnants of a great that, that legendary team.
12: Well, imagine, Brian, he's a kid who was born in the Midwest in the early 60s. And you're right. He's a teenager with the Big Red Machine when they win their championships. And then he debuts with the team in 1985. And you just mentioned some of the players, including Rose, who are still around. And in Chapter 1, we talk about him kind of being the, the accidental teammate because eight days into his career, Rose breaks Ty Cobb's all-time hit record. And O'Neill is running out onto the field thinking – this guy's poster used to be on my bedroom wall. Now now what am I supposed to do? Give him a hug? Give him a handshake? So, yeah, we cover a lot of his Cincinnati career in the first couple of chapters.
3: So he comes over to the Yankees, and he joins what would be one of the greatest runs uh, in modern baseball history uh, with this team who has 27 championships. And I believe Paul O'Neill won four. Here's a moment. Game five, 1996. The Yankees hadn't been to the World Series in so long. Uh, they finally get there and had to overcome a uh, a deficit. To, uh, to beat the Atlanta Braves. Here's a moment in game five. Paul O'Neill with a game seven catch with a bad hamstring. Cut 41.
2: 0 oh, 2 from Wetland. Oh, Into right field. O'Neill is there. Ball game. Yankees win 1 to nothing
4: as Wetland saves it for Andy Pettit. O'Neal with that bad hamstring we've been talking about. Full extension at the end of that play. Comes up limping.
3: So he was an all-around player, great arm, excellent outfielder who hit line drives, right?
12: A couple of things, yes, line drives, but a couple of things about that play real quickly, Brian. First of all, anyone who was ever at a Yankee game, Paul O'Neill had this habit of, while he was in the outfield of practicing his swing. Before that at bat, Louis Polonia was the hitter. Paul was practicing his swing. It's the ninth inning of a World Series game. The Yankee coaches, Jose Cardinal, was trying to get in touch with him because they wanted to shift him about seven steps to the right. They finally got to him before Polonia hit that ball. And I'm telling you, if he does not move, Brian, he doesn't catch that ball. So yes, Paul was, Paul was an all around player and he's very grateful that he peeked into the dugout and made sure that he moved to to his right to catch that ball.
3: Well, besides that, you don't remember much about the play. Um, Jack Curry, our guest. Uh, so Jack, do a thing amazing that that's when Mariano Rivera was a setup man. And John Wetland was the closer, right?
12: I used to call those, I was working for the New York times. Then I used to call those games, literally games, because after six innings, if you weren't beating the Yankees, you you lost because it was Mo for seven and eight. It was Wetland who sometimes would make it a high wire act, but he would usually, uh, handle the ninth year rate. Right. Um, I wonder if the Yankees might end up doing a little something like that this year. They got this kid, Michael King, who can pitch multiple innings. And you never want to compare someone to Mariano of 96 because that was off the charts. But I've thought that with this kid, King, we could see the Yankees in late innings letting him handle a seventh and an eighth.
3: Instead of Chapman? Chapman, Brian,
12: has really struggled. He's on the IL right now. I actually think when Chapman comes back, he, he should not be the closer. I think Clay Holmes, who's got a scoreless streak of 23 straight innings your your eyes and the numbers are telling you Mm. that Holmes is their best option to finish games right now
3: Paul O'Neill uh uh, the name of the book is nine innings of what baseball taught me it's about Paul O'Neill Jack Curry uh wrote it with Paul and it begins uh Paul uh with his relationship with his dad his dad was a pitcher but worked with uh Paul O'Neill about doing one thing hitting line drives. And he said, and something else, parents listening right now, you got your kids in Memorial Day tournaments, baseball, soccer, lacrosse. He said he never lambasted him at, at any point, no matter how hard the loss or how bad he played. Dad always stayed positive with him.
12: Yeah, and Paul said, and he had a funny line. I mean, this is his line that's in the book. He said, I was, always, I always look forward to get into the Ford Ranchero after the game because dad was usually going to take me for some ice cream. So. Right, there are there are different ways to coach kids. Paul's dad and and I know you've coached coached your kids. Paul's dad was was about positive, was about optimism, <clears throat> and he was about having knowledge. Brian, as you said, he was a minor league pitcher. He knew what it took to advance to that level, and he told Paul when he was five or six years old, "You're going to be a major leaguer." And Paul says, "When your dad tells you that at that age, you you, you just you're, you're a kid, you're excited." But he said he, he truly believed that his father saw that kind of potential in him.
3: Very interesting. So he also said this. He learned to, he learned to hit, and he would take tweaks, but he wouldn't change his swing. And P. Rose was the same way. Lou Pinella tried to change Paul O'Neill, didn't
12: he? Yeah, we covered that in Chapter 2. And what happened with Lou and Paul, they both admit that they remind— each other of each other. And Lou had a way that he thought somebody like O'Neill should hit. 6'4", 215. This big, powerful guy should get the ball in the air and hit more home runs. And he had some weight shift techniques that he wanted Paul to do with his lower half. That was not who Paul was. Paul was more, at least when he was in Cincinnati, kind of stood tall, wanted to hit line drives, hit them all over the field. So they ended up clashing. They did win a World Series together in 1990, but I interviewed Lou for the book too. And I think it was a case, Brian, of two really strong-willed hitting minds just didn't gel. They, they thought that the path to Paul being a great player, they had different ways to get to that path.
10: Yeah,
3: and the other thing about Paul O'Neill, he was one of the few who real, who Steinbrenner loved, right? Never would get under oh his skin. God. I know it was the last part <laughs> of his life, but he just loved the way Paul O'Neill played.
12: Go back to 1997, Brian, and the Yankees get knocked out by Cleveland, but in the ninth inning of that final game in the postseason, he hits a ball off the wall against Jose Mesa, and he hit it so hard that he had to stumble and sprawl and kind of awkwardly dive into second to get a double. In fact, and we. hey, Jack, on, do you
3: want to hear it? Say, Let's hear it. Let's, Let's hear it. it. Cut 43, game five.
12: In the right center
2: field, Grissom will not get there off the wall, off the bat of O'Neill,
5: Trying for two. Sunk for the double. Paul O'Neill may be hurt. It looked like his right knee curled up under him on that slide. A brilliant slide to the inside of the bag. He didn't catch the bag with his feet. He caught it with his right hand.
3: So now you can paint the picture even better. Wow! Right?
12: Well, first first of all, it's great hearing that. And, and Joe Buck and Tim McCarver all over it. Tim McCarver, phenomenal announcer. I think he added a little more elegance to what Paul's slide actually was. It was an all-out survival of the fittest. I've got to stumble and crawl and dive to get to this base before they tag me. Bernie Williams flew out after that. But the point of the slide was George Steinbrenner saw that. And from that moment on, he called Paul the warrior. And we talk about this in the book, Brian. Paul didn't like that initially. He thought it was a little hokey, a little cartoon character-esque. Why is he calling me the warrior? And then the more people around him talked to him about it, it said, do you realize how demanding George Steinbrenner is? Do you realize that when he tags you with a name like that, where he is elevating you in his eyes? And, and then Paul grew to love it.
3: Yeah, of course. I'd tell that to Dave Winfield. He would have loved to have heard that, right? Um, 100%. Yeah. So here is O'Neal talking about what I – it's the best season I've ever seen just in, in my lifetime. I was actually doing a lot of sports here at Fox News at the time. And it's 1998. The Yankee team they just refused to lose, and then they just walked away with the World Series. I think it was San Diego that year, right?
12: They swept San Diego, right? Yeah,
3: I remember watching David Cohn did not leave the dugout, watch everyone else cheer. I never asked him about that, why he never left the dugout while well, everybody else celebrated. But they won it in San Diego. Here's Paul O'Neill talking about that team, Cut 44.
6: In my mind, it was the closest to the perfect team that uh, I was ever part of. A lot of teams are really good on paper. And then, you know, injuries set in and guys don't have the years they're supposed to have. But all of a sudden, this, uh, this season started. And then once we got going, uh, it was—I've never seen a team go into a city looking to, to win two out of three, or three out of three. I mean, it's just like you would win two out of three and then you would expect to sweep and you would go on to the next series. It was really an amazing thing.
3: So, I mean, he loved talking about that team like everybody does, right? That's where uh, Joe Torrey takes over, Clueless Joe. Um, and he, it becomes pretty apparent that, that he is the right man at the right time.
12: Brian, you've given me a, a perfect segue. I know I popped on here to talk about Paul O'Neill and our book, Swing and a Hit. But I'm actually doing a book on the 98 Yankees that will be out in April because it'll be the 20. 20- five-year anniversary of that team. So that's my next project. So I appreciate you bringing that up. (laughs) You owe me a favor,
3: Jack. Jack Curry, our our guest. Um, So here's the thing. You picked a guy that people in Cincinnati and New York appreciate and opponents feared. I get it. But he didn't hit 500 home runs. He didn't hit 350. Even though his swing was compared to Ted Williams by his dad and he had conversations with Ted Williams and he had brushes with greatness with Rose and the Reds and with the Yankees, He's not the best player of all time. What made you think that Paul O'Neill's somebody I got to focus on,
12: Brian? You just talked about some of it. I think Paul O'Neill had a great career, and you're right; he's not a Hall of Famer. He would say the same thing himself. But he—how many players had over 2,000 hits, had almost 300 home runs, have five World Series rings, have a batting title? But then, I, I hate to use this, but I—I I, I use it because people will get the reference. He's got a Forrest Gump quality to his career. Was on the field within a week of his debut with Pete Rose's uh, tie bra- uh, record-breaking hit. Saw Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter as rookies, guys who were first ballot Hall of Famers, Mariano unanimously. Saw Joe Torre come in and get his first World Series ring after 30-plus years. You mentioned the, the connection with uh, Ted Williams. He's got the connection with the Big Red Machine. He and Bernie Williams, again, another – Bernie was a borderline Hall of Famer, not saying that Paul was. But there's so many ways we could intersect this book. And, Brian, honestly, that's one of the reasons I was able to convince Paul to do it. He didn't want to just talk about himself. But when I said we can right. bring in all of these other people who impacted your career – that really interested him. And I
3: will say this, Jack. I didn't cover the team all the time. Only when it became a national story. And my my first job was Sports Phone, so I used to go into the locker room when Stump Merrill was uh, coach of the Yankees. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and Moss was the uh, the, were the the baby bombers back then. But I always found out yes. Paul O'Neill was always in a bad mood. He always seemed angry at the media. Does he even uh, does he talk about his relationship with the media? Why he outside the Jack Currys yes, of the exactly. world and and maybe the Michael Kays, He wasn't that pleasant yes. ever.
12: We talk about that, and I describe a scene in 1994 where he he's hitting 400 in the middle of June, Brian. That's that's a huge story, and if you're the beat writer, that's your story every day. And approaching Paul was, was tricky because he didn't want to talk about it. And he says in the book that I always used to tell writers, nothing I say to you before the game is going to help me get a hit in the game. I think he was so locked in that he didn't want to get in his own head about what he might be doing. Paul did believe that if you went to the plate with less clutter, you could be a better hitter.
3: Hey, Jack, congratulations. Another great project, another great book. Uh, pick it up. Paul O'Neill and Jack Curry write nine innings of what baseball taught me, Swinging a hit. Uh, good job, uh, Jack. Thanks so much, and have continued you to have a great season. I love watching you.
12: Thanks for having me on, Brian. Always good to talk to you. Take care.
3: Yeah, uh, check out Jack always, every day on Yes. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Back in a moment.
2: He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: At some point today, we're going to get a very detailed TikTok. Up to the minute, Bill Malusian said, our reporter on the ground, that what happened to Uvalde at that elementary school uh, a couple of days ago as we get more and more details. Uh, And how bad that press conference was yesterday at 2 in the afternoon. The officer failed to even mention how many people they did get out through exterior windows. I mean, that would be something you would reach for let alone, uh, uh, and people say, well, you overemphasize that. He, they chose to forget it. I want to squeeze another call. Paul in Boston. Paul, going to be talking about things to harden our schools and make sure this doesn't happen again. What ideas do you have?
9: Good evening, Brad. Good morning, Brad. I came out of retirement to tell you these three quick points. The FBI went to see the parking shooter 13 times. Monitoring is the illusion of preserving and protecting. People that are psychotic and sociopaths tell you what you want to hear. Adam Lanza walked into Newtown because his mom worked there. They just let him walk in, and putting the cop isn't going to work because they'll just shoot the cop right through his bulletproof vest and puts the police in danger. What Newtown did, it's time for the cities and the districts to recognize this. You have to create a one-entrance, kiddie port, separate bulletproof doors in the front and the back with a hidden metal detector. If you go into one of our schools to kill one of our kids, you're not getting in. Brian, there's been 900 shootings since Newtown. The baby form is locked up in the front of the grocery store. Our money's in a bank vault, but our most precious treasure, our children, are wide-open targets. We have-
3: That's a great point. Man, that was well put, Paul. Excellent way to end the hour. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We all have the same objective. Let's see if we can get there. Keep it here.
1: Brian Kilmeade Show.